Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, um, and welcome to the examination schools. Uh, my name is Jonathan Bate, the Provost of Worcester College, and it's an enormous pleasure um, to be chairing this afternoon's very, very special event. It's part of the Humanitas programme. Humanitas is a series of visiting professorships at Oxford and Cambridge intending to bring leading practitioners and scholars to both universities to address major themes in the arts, social sciences, and humanities. Created by Lord Weidenfeld, who is with us this afternoon, it's always a huge pleasure to see him back here in Oxford. The programme is managed and funded by the Institute for Strategic Dialogue with the support of a series of generous benefactors. And this particular chair is generous, generously supported by Eric Abraham, and we're very pleased that he is here this afternoon, as are other representatives of the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, um, who, who have all made a wonderful contribution to this extraordinary visionary programme. It's a, going to be a very unusual format this afternoon. You have not just come to a lecture, you have come to an event. This is what's going to happen. Um, we're going to have the lecture by Vanessa, um, and then we're going to have a screening of the short film, The Killing Fields, by her son, Carlo Nero. And Carlo, who's with us, is, it will, will briefly introduce the film. Then after the screening, there'll be a 15-minute break. I will explain all this again when we get to the break. And then we're going to come back for a uh, discussion with a very interesting panel um, whom, whom, whom we've gathered. Um, now, you may, at this point, be thinking, well, what has uh, a, a, a contemporary environmental film um, called The Killing Fields got to do with King Lear, the subject of the lecture? But I think that is what we will find out in Vanessa's lecture. I think it would be impertinent of me to introduce Vanessa Redgrave to you on a Shakespearean occasion. Um, when we were preparing the illustrations for the Royal Shakespeare Company edition of the complete works of Shakespeare, the first thing I said to the RSC was, we must have an illustration of Vanessa Redgrave cross-dressed as Ganymede when she played the part of Rosalind in Michael Elliott's great 1961 production of As You Like It at the very dawn of the RSC. And who would have thought 50 years, 51 years after that, we would be going to the cinema and seeing Vanessa Redgrave in the role of Volumnia, the mother of Ray Fiennes' Coriolanus, in what is, I think, one of the finest Shakespeare films of recent years. In between, of course, she's played a huge array of Shakespearean roles, including the part of Prospero, no less, on, at Shakespeare's Globe. Um, and, of course, she'll be very familiar to you for a huge range of film work, going all the way back to A Man for All Seasons, um, as I say, all, all, all the way forward to Coriolanus. Um, and, of course, an enormous number um, of stage hits uh, in London, on Broadway, throughout the world, a record-breaking run on Broadway, uh, where she starred opposite James Earl James in Driving Miss Daisy. And, of course, Vanessa will be very familiar to you for her extraordinary political and social work over the years, her work with UNICEF UK as a special representative, her work with UNHCR, her work with Russian Human Rights Foundations, and, of course, with Amnesty, with Liberty. The list could go on. Now, what better play to bring together Vanessa's passions, her expertise, than King Lear? The play that was performed by Shakespeare's company in front of his King's Majesty, in front of King James at Whitehall Palace in 1606, by the King's men, and yet a play that contains Shakespeare's most searing critique of injustice, of the abuses of power, and also perhaps of the abuses of the land. So it's my enormous honour and pleasure to introduce this Humanitas lecture, Vanessa Redgrave, Speak What We Feel, Not What We Ought to Say, Poverty, Land and the Rule of Law in King Lear. Ladies and gentlemen, Vanessa Redgrave. come to rehearsal like this with pads and papers and reference books and so on and um, so I'm just explaining why I've, I've got such a litter in front of me. It's, I'm trying to say I'm normal. 
take it from there. Um, yes. What vision do we have? How can we clarify the vision that we have, whether we're talking about literal eyesight or whether we're talking about being able to see perfectly and yet being unable to see almost anything. This was a subject that much preoccupied Oskar Kokoschka, who actually founded a school for seeing some years after the war in Switzerland. And I have noticed myself, I set myself a task once I was in Washington and there was an early Picasso exhibition and uh, of course I wanted to seize the chance to see it. And I went over and it was quite a large exhibition and I decided, all right, I'm going to memorize the paintings in the first room and in the second room I'm going to choose one picture and I'm going to stay half an hour in front of it and then I'm going to leave. Um, because as I expect we've all experienced it's kind of hopeless going into a gallery and a good great artist always has a queue and so the queue moves round and round and on and on and out and sometimes that's the best you can do, but I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. Memorizing the paintings was successful to a certain point, and I came to the second room, and I chose a small frame, no bigger than what I've just drawn. It was a small oil painting, and basically there was a man half-dressed, there was a bed, there was a woman, it was some kind of attic, first impression. And by the time I'd spent 30 minutes literally just looking at that painting, I realized that at first view I had seen nothing and I had my spectacles on. And it's something the same certainly with a text or a script. I don't let a script out of my reach until the very, very last moment of rehearsal. Unless the director tells me, no, I, I want you to be off the book, in which case I'll say, yes, I'll be off the book, but I want the book just off there. <laughs> because hour by hour, day by day, my eyes and ears will discover things that I thought I'd read, the words I'd learned. And certainly, certainly the same has to be true when you're looking at a text like King Lear, and certainly it has to be true of when you're seeking the help of books like The Soul of the Age by Professor Bate here. Can I call you Jonathan now? Good, <laughs> lovely. <laughs> Thank you. And you're delving into, going, going backwards. You're reading the text in the present. You in the present are reading the text then the cognitive process takes you with the help maybe of a teacher, professor, oral, certainly through a book, two books, three books, certainly certain memories of a performance which struck you. But you're going back trying to be able to see, although inside one's head and heart, to see when that was written as if you were there. In other words, to put yourself into the shoes of those certainly who wrote it, but then also the people of that country, the people of the city, 
the social conditions, the economic conditions, and so on. Because I think there's no doubt that there is a cognitive barrier when you come to read a very, very great play. One cognitive barrier is that you know this is a very great play. The other is that you come to it even without wanting to, you come to it with certain preconceived notions. They could be very good notions, they could be not very good notions, but you come to a play with preconceived notions. And most of the texts that you actually read, this is in my experience anyway, and I'm not as well read, as I'm sure, as most of you here, most of the texts you read some will have illustrations. In the case of King Lear, he will have streaming white hair, and if you're talking about the 1890s, he will have voluminous cloaks, and sometimes you will have a photograph of a production. You may have seen that production. But in any case, you come to the text with memories and sometimes the memories are attached, attached to notions. And I'm emphasizing this because I'm an actress. Maybe I wouldn't if I weren't, but I am. And I do find that uh, one of the wonderful things that there are in our world are the communion and community of actors and actresses wherever you go. You seem to strike up. You do strike up. You've met all kinds of conditions, a lot of time very badly paid, a lot of time unemployed, and sometimes the wonderful, what appears like the most immense good fortune, you get to work, and you get to work with a great text, or a good text. Everything doesn't have to be great. So, I've tried to put myself into the process of both going to when Shakespeare wrote it as opposed to where Shakespeare set it. Um, and I think that's probably customary today, certainly. That's the way that you, Jonathan, have approached Shakespeare's mind, the soul of the age. But then, there's still a certain chill, and I'm calling it a chill just as by way of an expression. Nothing chilly about your book, Jonathan. It's wonderfully communicative, but there seems to be a kind of chill, such as you get in, you go into the House of Commons and a chill comes over you. I'm not using this in a pejorative sense, necessarily. <coughs> I'm using it as a physical fact. Somehow, the age and the period of the architecture chills you. It's a weight. Um, and however diligently you research, and how, thank goodness for, for the books like Jonathan's, however diligently you research, it's quite an enormous effort to be able to be there. That effort is immediately resolved once you start thinking of now. That is in my experience. If I keep coming back to now and go to the text, keep coming back to now, go back to the new facts, the new information about when it was written, coming back to now. Now, three storms come immediately to mind. Ours now. The one after the, the, during the Second World War and what was discovered finally when Hitler's forces were defeated and what was happening in the now of Shakespeare. The storm now 
or perhaps I should say the three storms. And the storm that I think of first is the storm that I lived through very sheltered in comparison relative to the vast majority of people and children in Europe, and certainly compared to if you were Jewish. But it was a storm, and we did see Coventry aflame from about 50 miles away. The entire sky was lit up. We did spend many nights in basements while people around us sang songs, and I've done the same myself on journeys with UNICEF while bombs have been pouring on the ground. In other words, man-made storms, sometimes coinciding with the weather. And the first moment that I really felt, let's just use that ordinary word, uplifted, was when I, by chance, turned on the radio when I was 11 years old. I'd learned to read by the time I was five, so I'd read quite a lot, and I'd read The Merchant of Venice, for instance, which I thought was a thrilling play. All that glistens is not gold. That caught my imagination straight off. I turned on the radio, I was 11, I think it must have been at the end of 1948, somewhere around about that, and the BBC were broadcasting a United Nations radio broadcast. It was called The Declaration of Human Rights. And each article was read out by whoever it was read out by, and then there was a little dramatic scene to clarify exactly what that article meant. And I remember very well that I suddenly really focused when I heard of the article prohibiting torture. Why did that season me? Because I had had news and had read the news after the victory when the news began to come out, very slowly began to come out as to what had happened in Europe, what had happened in the death camps, what had happened in the concentration camps, and later, what had happened to people when they had finally been liberated, what had happened to the survivors, so few compared to some six million who had been slaughtered. So, even though relatively safe in that sense, um, listening to the news storm warnings every night before the news when we were five, six, seven, eight, we'd listen to the weather forecast. This is the BBC News. Here is the weather forecast. And we'd hear of the gale warnings and they were each given a number. And the reason why we were, my brother and I, my sister was not yet born, um, listened together with our elderly cousin, one of the first women to go to university in London. We listened because my mother's two brothers were in the Royal Navy. We didn't know where they were because we weren't allowed to know where they were, but we knew they might be in the North Sea, so we were very concerned with the North Sea. We were also concerned with the islands and the rocky cliffs around the west coast of Ireland. And we didn't get weather forecasts for the Pacific Ocean, which was where at one point one of my uncles went. And indeed was a kind of hero. And even today I'm sure his father, my grandfather, even today I'm sure that he himself, and even today I myself, feel hesitant about proclaiming him as a hero as opposed to one of the heroes, because I know very well that there were so many young men like him who 
were prepared to keep the spirits up of everyone they were with, were prepared to go off into the jungles and the rainforests with guns, with dislocated shoulders, as my uncle was, and fight, and then get in a boat, get out, and get bombed, shelled into the water, and with a dislocated arm, said goodbye to Stoker, and started to swim towards the coast, which of course he never made. And I'm mentioning him because inevitably he and others that I'd heard about, that I'd read, that I'd met, refugees from Nazi Europe, all of them artists, the ones that I met, um, I knew what they'd come from to the extent that they would let a very young child know what they'd come from. And I turned on the radio and there was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Now, having it already been half past three, um, I'm not going to do what I wanted to do, which was to read you out the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as turned into language that anyone can understand. But I'm just going to... Well, here it is, but I'm not going to read it out. But it says, or this was issued by Amnesty International, the Irish section in 2007, and it just says, almost 60 years ago, these rights were pledged as universal to all people and for all times. If you're reading them right now, you are enjoying at least some of them. Thousands of people in Ireland and millions of people worldwide are not so lucky. Our mission is the full enjoyment of all these rights by all people. Can you help us to join, donate, or take action? Go to www.amnesty. In this case, IEF Ireland. And the same would apply for the UK and the international. Years later, when Carlo and I were in New York, and Carly was directing and we were co-producing between the two of us a film in tribute to UNICEF. And we wanted this to be, of course, the history of the United Nations Children's Fund, which began literally in the last, the, the first months following the Second World War. But we also wanted to show the emergency side of UNICEF's work and to show the development side of UNICEF's work. And of course, you can't have development if you've got no archives, no research, no base. You can only react. And that doesn't bring the help to the children that you need to bring help to. And I'm referring to this only because that was how I came to see for the first time, live on film, what I'd seen long before written in a book. We sat and we watched this small clip of Eleanor Roosevelt introducing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was passed in Paris. Sorry. Sorry about that. In 1948 and she said in that inimitable way she had and this will be the magna carta of our times and that was exactly why i lit up and carlo did too because when i'd heard it on the radio i hadn't heard her voice i hadn't heard her say magna carta but something in me entirely untutored, almost entirely uneducated, except for learning French and Italian, I got the point. Magna Carta, the Great Charter, universal rights. And one of those rights, of course, is referred to as property. 
but we all know that property actually comes to land. That is what all property is based on. And at the beginning of King Lear, you have this, if you've never seen before, you have a king. You don't know anything about him. You haven't been given a lesson about him or death. One always has to imagine oneself into the shoes of someone who doesn't know anything about this king or why he's come onto the stage. And he says to three young women in front of him, princesses, he says, I'm going to give you my land, but first I want to hear how much you love me. Love being another word for loyalty. In my view, and I'm saying this right up front, particularly as I'm taking so much time, in my view, King Lear, yes, it is about family relations, if you wish to take it on that level. And I'm not saying that level is unimportant. But this is a king. And this is not as Shakespeare intended that King James I would understand it. This is not sent way, way, way millennia back, lost in time, old Albion. It's actually set in his own times. But he's carefully, to survive, has ensured that there are enough things happening to say, don't worry if you hear anything you don't like, it's okay, this all happened thousands of years ago. Don't worry. And my own view, um, Shakespeare was a survivor and here there would be others who could say how many others survived, had to survive in the same way as creative writers. He was a survivor by, in part, going along with what was happening. He wasn't political, he wasn't a nobleman, he wasn't an earl, he wasn't a duke, he wasn't Walter Raleigh, he wasn't the Earl of Essex, nor was he Cecil, nor was he Burley although undoubtedly he'd met them. But he had to survive. And so he survived somewhat in the way that, not all, far from it, Soviet writers, a few of them, survived. And they survived by making sure that, as Ilya Ehrenberg did, making sure that you go along but you find whatever ways you can to keep that precious oxygen available, even if everybody still can't breathe that oxygen, that oxygen is going to be available. How many people is not the point. It's not the point because scientifically we know today that what takes place in one field of energy is transmitted through all fields and all barriers, whatever the scientists know how to call them. What matters is that energy, that creative energy, that soul. And I pay profound respects to you, Jonathan, for giving us the soul of the age. I'm appalled to see how long I'm talking and how, how little I've covered of what I want to. Um, the first thing I want to read out is reference. Some of you may know the play backwards far better than I do. Some of you may not. <coughs> I will be referring to the text as much as possible. And I will be referring to the economist that I know a little and respect muchly, Joseph E. Stiglitz. And we are going to, as Jonathan said, show a film which is concerned on the question of land. And land is the first thing that is addressed in Shakespeare's Licking Lear, 
Because, the daughters are told, if you give me enough love, I will give you this amount of land. Love meaning loyalty. They are the daughters of a tyrant, after all, as we begin to realize. And there follow two speeches of extravagant loyalty, although I bet the first time anybody heard Goneril and Reagan proclaim their love, they might, and certainly they should think, that every word is genuine. And that's how it should be approached. We should not get one signal up front. I'm getting dogmatic now. We should not get one signal up front that they don't mean what they say. We should think they do mean what they say. And my gosh, do they need to be sure that everybody believes them what they are saying? Because we are living in a very tyrannical situation in the country. That's a loose word, it's a generalization, but it can be underpinned every step of the way. So then Leah turns to the girl he says he loves most, makes that clear straight off, and he says, all right, having given away two-thirds of his land, which means his people have been given away to Goneril and Reagan. And he turns to Cordelia and says, now, how much do you love me? What can you say? And she says, nothing. He says, nothing will come of nothing. She's not a loyal subject, and she has to be. The fact that she's his daughter is neither here nor there. That's all right when they spend an hour by the fire, some off time. But this isn't off time, this is on time. And he's been king long enough to know how you stay king, in spite of all threats from inner circles as much as outer circles, as well as from his people. And in the very first speech of the Earl of Gloucester, who we find to be as opinionated and, but as wise or not wise as the tyrant King Lear, and Gloucester says, these late eclipses in the sun and moon pretend no good to, portend no good to us. Though the wisdom of nature can reason it thus and thus, yet nature finds itself scourged by the sequent event. Love cools, friendship falls off, brothers divide, in cities, mutinies, in countries, discord, in palaces, treason, and the bond cracked between son and father. We have seen the best of our time, machinations, hollowness, treachery, and all ruinous disorders follow us disquietly to our graves. Now, we should know, and I'm sure we all do, when we see King Leonir, the Earl of Gloucester, say that, that's what's happening right now to him. That's his country. But then the art of theatre is to communicate what those words mean. <coughs> And coming to the now, as we realize that a storm is raging already, both metaphorically and literally, in the King Lear's kingdom, we think of the storm, I think of the storm, the catastrophic <coughs> economic and political storm in our world today. And I'm encouraged not, in, not that any, anything could stop me. I cannot. I don't see how anybody can live or breathe any passing day without knowing what's going on, but maybe not understanding everything about what's going on. That's what's wonderful 
about this play and pretty well anything that Shakespeare wrote, but especially this play. It's catastrophic, it's like a tsunami, and it's far from over. In spite of all that's been said, we're over it. I think the majority of people realize, or fear, rightly, or suspect, rightly, that it's far from over. And indeed, if you read this wonderful book, which I'm sure I'm not going to have time to read any section of to you, but it's called Free Fall, America, Free Markets, and the Sinking of the World Economy. Fantastic book, and if you don't know how this happened and is happening, it's written in such a clear, thought through, lived through, felt through way that you will know what's going on and why it happened and why what's going on is going on. Now I'm coming back to Act One again, The Fool. And he says to, here Shakespeare uses something very important as a fool. You can't accept, take exception to anything a fool says. You cannot. Yet there are people sitting in the audience thinking, this is now, this is now. But they won't be talking about it. They'll be thinking it. And I do believe Shakespeare wrote his play, hoping to stir the conscience of the king. Because that's what a playwright can do. They can stir both consciences and consciousness. Films do it a different way. Because films can sometimes cover more than even a play can cover and certainly more than a book. And most people can't take the time to read books and they're too expensive. And still, in spite of the internet, the majority of people are not on the internet. Though more and more have getting cell phones still, communications are not good. Can you make no use of nothing, uncle? Fool says, why no boy, nothing can be made out of nothing. Fool says, prithee tell him, so much the rent of his land comes to. And there's the first time, and not the only time, that we hear the word rent in King Lear. King Lear gets his wealth from the rent from the land that he owns. And we indeed find a tenant farmer at the end of the play. I think often these characters all get cut or they just come on wielding some barrow or something and you don't know who they are because so that the leading characters will have more time to show who they are. Unfortunately, this, it often works out this way. And Leah says, dost thou call me fool, boy? And the fool says, all thy other titles thou hast given away, but that thou wast born with. Kent says to Leah, this is not altogether fool, my lord. Fool, no faith, lords and great men will not let me. If I had a monopoly out, they would have part on it. There's where we get the monopolies. The monopolies that have begun long before Elizabeth I and continued into James I and were connected with the reasons why Cromwell and the English Revolution took place. And I believe we see glimpses of what is leading ahead to that revolution, to the growth of the Puritans and the growth of catastrophic poverty and lack of rights in England in the time of Elizabeth and James I in those first years and today in our times. And it's interesting, the links, because, again, I'm praising somewhat, but I hope you will forgive me. At the time this play was performed, I'm coming to a book in a second, 
which if you haven't read already, is absolutely priceless. It costs £9.99. pence, But it is priceless. And on the question of some history on the rule of law, which means the protection of rights, or the still lacking protection of rights, we come to Bingham having stated Magna Carta as being the first milestone in the rule of law. And he comes then to the petition of right as being the second great milestone. That was in 1623. Couched in the obsequious language which those who are trying to survive need to use, but what they are actually saying is earth-shaking. You will not put us in prison because we haven't paid you the money you are asking from us, my lord, my gracious majesty. You will not. The king did, and his son, who had protected the unique, divine-given law imposed by the monarch. There was a civil war, and I think that in both King Lear, well, I am certain, personally, I'm not demanding that you should be certain, I think it's something we have to find for ourselves, that in that prescient way that writers can feel a trend can feel what could or will happen if rights are not granted and stabilized and set there for the protection of all. I'm stressing the protection of all. And coming on then to the American Bill of Rights, and by the way, I was really interested to know while I was studying for us meeting today that it was when the Cromwellian Revolution was successful, that was when torture became absolutely prohibited. In common law, it had been prohibited. However, the Privy Council and the monarch could write a special paper, and that would be transmitted to the tower, and the prisoner who needed, you needed to get a confession out of, usually false, of course, sometimes true, was tortured and so on. But it was interesting that it was that revolution that put a stop to torture. <coughs> but here comes the American Bill of Rights. I'm emphasizing this because people think, well, law is something that unless you transgress it, it stays in a book or it stays on the wall. What does it mean for us now? Is it alive? Well, it's only alive in so much as we are aware that there are rights, or not aware, but need to get those rights. And they are to be found first and foremost through law. The rule of law, which means basically right the way across the board, including land and property. It's the rule of law that comes into play if we are to be a democracy. So, on page 29 of the Bingham's Rule of Law, and I kind of worshipped Bingham for his judgments in this decade, this past decade. Um, he's speaking of the right under the American Bill of Rights, which is the amendments to the American Constitution, and known to American lawyers as the Confrontation Clause was an explicit rejection of the notoriously unfair procedure adopted at the trial of Sir Walter Raleigh for treason when the Attorney General, Sir Edward Coke, adamantly refused to call the chief witness on whose evidence the prosecution relied, evidence by which the witness, which the witness had later retracted. And so, Article 8 
Article 7 preserved the right to trial by jury in any civil case where the sum in dispute exceeds $20. And I was so thrilled when the first time I read your book, I've been rereading it again, to find Shakespeare talking about an enclosure of a portion of the Welcome Hills, because I used to walk up and down the Welcome Hills, and I even went riding and went head over into the fields over my horses, because I was riding bareback. And, you know, when you've seen a place, you know it, and you think, oh, where that hotel stands, long ago, that land was enclosed. And likewise, those woods there. And which was the bit revealed in Jonathan's book, where a friend comes to Shakespeare and says, what's happening about these enclosures? We've got to stop these enclosures. And apparently, Shakespeare said to him, after reflecting, or a week writing a letter a week later, well, don't be too concerned about these enclosures. They're going to be assessing the land first. And then, by the spring, they'll have worked things out. And none of us here in Stratford think that anything's going to come of it. I go into my local stationers yesterday, inquire about the son of the, the father who runs the shop, and I say, how's Wiki? And he says, oh, he's very, doing very well. He's working for this firm. He goes out and assesses land from the ecological point of view. <coughs> so there you get what seems to always happen, this collision of tectonic plates of the now and the then. And shocking as sometimes these collisions are, deeply shocking, deeply injurious, with horrifying results for children, for students, for all the health systems, the educational systems, the old age pensions. Sometimes something sings out as it did with the Supreme Court under the Bush administration, which had, not entirely, but had some significant judges appointed by President George Bush. And when we had our prisoners, now all but one, released from Guantanamo, and there were three habeas corpus judgments three in the course of two years. Of course, there were lawyers who had to work far harder, far longer to get it up to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court ruled, and basically the essence of the three rulings, <coughs> what were they about? They weren't about, yes, the men can go free from this hellhole of a concentration camp. They were about, is it 10? Thank you, Jonathan. They were about habeas corpus, their right to have legal representation in a trial. And that's where the history that sometimes we only know through a play, and certainly we can see much of, if we're alive and alert to it, in Shakespeare and in King Lear. That's when history of all these dead people and all they fought for and all they suffered comes like an extraordinary field, energy field, and comes into the now and comes into the Supreme Court of the United States <coughs> Circles. And that Supreme Court which had just lost Sandra Day O'Connor, one of the great judges of the Supreme Court. That's where even the most conservative, if we use that inadequate word, even the most conservative judges had that history run like electricity through their blood and the American Revolution lived again in them. Probably they were unaware of it. Maybe being judges, it comes into their mind, I'd better just check this, hey, 
Shall we meet tonight and just check through what it says back here in the article something? <laughs> After all, they do protect America. I think that the American Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, which need to go together, are, I would like to hear those once a month. We have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And we also have an extraordinary play. I'm ashamed, Mr. Chair, Jonathan, and fellow people in this room. I'm ashamed that I've got 10 minutes left to make a distinct reference to King Lear. What is it basically about? I'm not ruling out other interpretations. I'm not ruling out other aspects which are vital to an understanding of the play. But basically, what is it about? It's a man who has absolute power, whose circles have given him, allowed him to have absolute power. He gives that power away. He gives his identity in psychological terms, away with the land that he finally ends up in the hands of his two daughters, yes, but two people who are very capable and indeed prove it of destroying their father, destroying all who support their father. And through that horrifying storm that he is sent out into, and through the shock, the indeed literal heart attack that he gets when he realizes that a subject has just declared, his daughter, by the way, has just declared complete and total, <coughs> overwhelmingly, almost divine love for him. He goes into that storm and begins to take on board the intolerable miserable destitution in his country, living in this land to which they have, are being stripped away of their rights by the enclosures, by the Poor Law Act, the fourth Poor Law Act passed by Elizabeth I, Poor Law Act of 1601, which brought together all the penalties, a penalty that greatly increased confidence of the biggest landowners, the biggest favorites, the most loyal. They wanted their enclosures and they wanted more land and they wanted more enclosures. This created enormous poverty as did some harvests that mildewed the wheat. So with no roof over their heads, increasing numbers with every month that went by, went out begging. <coughs> or if they were lucky or unlucky, they got put in a correction house or poorhouse, workhouse, where they would work on the wool produced from the sheep that had eaten the grass on which formerly these landless people had had common right to get to grow corn, strips of corn, barley, rye, to have animals, a few sheep, a goat, what have you. It was now became a felony nationwide in 1601 to combine in any shape or form to protest against enclosures against rising prices. And there's one other thing which my brain suddenly is saying, stop, Vanessa, go, don't go there because you can't remember. It was a horrifying act. Horrifying in every possible way, and it's interesting to realize that the workhouses and the correction houses continued till after the Second World War as a TV show, which I read the book about, I don't know how much it comes across on the TV, called Call the Midwife. I think it's on right now. 
And it's, they were still kids. In 45, 46. Just after the Second World War, in these workhouses. They were supposed to, even in 1601, get an hour of reading. Well, we're quite sure it happened to that. So the most, now I must finish, um, I just want to find my reference. <coughs> now without that background, how can poor Tom have any, can carry any conviction whatsoever? The disguise that the Earl of Gloucester's son, who has been proscribed by his father, if he doesn't get out of England, he will be killed at the stake all the 60, early 1600s. So he disguises himself as one of the typical poor. And I feel it's essential to remember that if you were poor, you would have to beg and you would steal if you've got some kids. And so there were gibbets up every country road, around every country town, at crossroads, etc., and around London. But here's one of the extraordinary speeches, and now I must end. I read two speeches. And we notice, by the way, that there's a tenant farmer who helps Gloucester at one point, whose eyes have been put out as a torture, as punishment for having taken taken the side of the homeless, landless king. And there are other servants, not of the king necessarily, <coughs> who help save lives. And there are differences within the tight circles. Not all of them will agree to go all the way with cruelty and extortion and destitution. And of course Shakespeare saved himself by having the fool say, I'm speaking to you now. I lived before, or I live, before Merlin, the magician who helped King Arthur existed. Now if a fool comes before, if I'm a fool, I'm having to protect myself. I will say to you, listen, you've got it all wrong. I'm not Vanessa, I'm not 75 years old. I actually am someone who lived 3,000 years ago before King Arthur's time. <coughs> Another way he saved himself. Here comes Lear. Sorry, here comes Gloucester. Lear has a similar speech. Gloucester. He's just been saved by his, I've been your tenant and your father's tenant these four score years. He is, Gloucester has still allowed some of his tenant farmers to stay on his land, which they will be driven off if they cannot pay the rent. But Gloucester has come to see things he never thought about before, just as Lear has. <coughs> and Gloucester says, he has some reason pointing to the beggar, poor Tom, who is in fact the son of the Earl of Gloucester. He has some reason. Else he could not beg. Here, take this purse. And he gives this purse to the beggar. Let the superfluous and lust-dieted man that slaves your ordinance, that will not see because he does not feel, feel your power quickly. He's speaking about the power of the beggar and not just one beggar, all beggars. Let the superfluous and lust-dieted man, that 
that slaves your ordinance that will not see because he does not feel. Feel your power quickly. So distribution should undo excess and each man have enough. And here's finally closing 30 seconds. At the very end, we see that Goneril, through the corruption of having the full power that half the land and half its people has bestowed upon her, when her husband, who has now understood who she is and opposes her, she says, the law is mine not thine. Who shall arraign me for it? Who shall impeach me? Who shall charge me for it? Who will put me on trial? The law is mine. These are tiny little extraordinary moments and many more besides that are shaking the structure of King Lear, arising from the shaking conditions and changes that made Shakespeare write King Lear. And at the moment that it was performed, it was 11 months after the Catholic terrorists of the gunpowder plot <coughs> had been tried in January 1606. Walter Raleigh, who had nothing to do with the gunpowder plot, was also in the tower. He'd been in the tower for three years. And he was assailed by Attorney General Cope with the same kind of words that Lear uses against his daughter. Southampton was in the tower because he had been reprieved from being executed as a co-member of the Earl of Essex's coup d'etat against Queen Elizabeth. So he was in the tower. Shakespeare had written, everybody says so today, and I guess they knew it yesterday in 1606. Shakespeare had not only written a considerable number of sonnets that everyone believed he had written to the Earl of Southampton, but one of his plays had been put on with money being given the night before Essex, in a panic, in a mad panic, set forth into the city to get support, of which he found none in spite of his enormous popularity. And that's where King Lear finally realizes, but we had to have his realization for us, the spectators, us in 1606, us in 2012 to take on board. He must have hoped he could stir the conscience of the king. And it did happen. Not, I'm not saying that the king's conscience was been, been, had been stirred, but the play was published. The play did go out. And it went out in many shapes and forms. And we can be quite sure that the secret print impresses that were working overtime, hidden around the country, whether of Catholics, whether of Puritans, whether of this group or that group, <coughs> the essence of these horrifying conditions was gathered together and only Let's see, he died in 1616. In 1623, there's the folio. So what's that, seven years after there's the folio. And in 16, the last 1627-28 came the petition of right, the first enormous emigrations to found col colonies, Puritan colonies specifically in the United States. In other words, the Civil War is cupping up the line. But 
between those who believe all men receive divinity from God directly, if they see it in religious terms, and all men must have the opportunity to be free from prison, vast fines and penalties, or the taking away of their land. And then the little diggers. I'm sorry I've taken too long, Jonathan. Um, I guess we'll stop there. Um, my apologies for having run on, but I've learned that it's, it's no good just talking. You've got to communicate, and I've just touched on some of the, you know when helicopters go over the land and fields, they can discern the shapes of past buildings. You can't discern the shapes of past human beings. You can only do that through the theater and through a play like King Lear. Thanks very much for coming. <laughs>